How's it going everybody? On this episode, Aaron and I are going to be talking about late season hunting. It can be frustrating as a public land hunter or somebody that hunts private land on permission where you don't have control over all the factors on the area that you're hunting to listen to people talk about late season hunting because a lot of the media that I've consumed over the years and probably you as well is all pretty similar. It talks about finding a food source late season and I think that that's a lot of times easier said than done and it's something that we're still learning about all the time. Trying to find food sources that aren't super obvious like a standing bean field for example can sometimes be challenging and a lot of times they look different year to year but in this podcast Aaron and I are going to be talking about different experiences that we've had with different strategies and how mature bucks act differently than the rest of the deer even in the late season. Before we get started I wanted to let you guys know that we've partnered with the social media platform Go Wild to combat mainstream social media's censorship. Go Wild is a free social community where not only are your photos not censored, they're encouraged. Go Wild gives you points for things like sharing your trophies, gear reviews, and inviting friends. As you earn points, you unlock awesome rewards such as gift cards, free swag, knives, huge discounts on brands like Garmin and Vortex, and if you create a free account, you can unlock $10 just for trying it out. So visit downloadgowild.com to get started. And if you want to save any money while you're on the Go Wild store, you can use the code THP10 to save you 10% on all orders. Here in the next couple of weeks on the podcast, we'll probably continue to talk about late season hunting, but as the season ends, if there's anything that you guys want to hear about specifically, feel free, as always, to send a message and let me know what you'd like to hear because, quite frankly, I could always use a little bit of help getting creative when it comes to thinking of topics to talk about. I'm sure we can talk about pretty much anything, but sometimes just getting that ball rolling or coming up with the idea is a little bit challenging. So thanks for listening. Hope you guys enjoy it. Let's get Warb on the line and talk late season. Yeah, we we can talk deer hunting for sure, man. Me and Ted were after it. Uh, let me think. When did late muzz start? I think on the 19th of December. So we hunted four days. Actually, I basically scouted one day and then hunted three days um, following that. But yeah, it was cold. It was frigid. It was the coldest coldest I've ever hunted for sure. Like. Yeah. Uh, a couple years ago, when we we killed that buck in the gun bowl, mm-hmm. you know, when, when that year that you and Corn Dog killed that one down there, and then me and you mm-hmm. went back in there and saw that buck that I eventually shot with Greg later in the season. That night, me and Greg shot that thing. It was zero or one, mm-hmm. which is like I think that's about what it was when you and Nick killed yours in Minnesota, wasn't it? Yep, it was it was one. Yeah, Re- I and mean, then real. Just, I mean, real feel like negative 12 i think or yeah like that. yeah Brutal. i mean frigid frigid and like as we're coming up to this week to muzzleloader hunt me and ted are looking at the forecast and we're like is this right like there's no way it's going to be a high of negative 10 like that's the coldest with 45 mile an hour winds it's like the sustained winds too um, we were looking at that forecast like, no way this is actually going to happen because that's about as cold as I've ever, it's, that's, that's about as cold as I remember it around here anyway, mm-hmm. let alone going outside in the stuff. Right. So, 
Yeah, we had that kind of sort of dynamic to deal with. But going into the to that gun season, we I spent the first day scouting, which is what we do a lot of during gun season. And we've talked about this a bunch. Like whenever you're hunting in any really any sort of environment where you got lots of hunting pressure, we spend as much or more time scouting than even hunting because we're looking for that hunting pressure. So that's what that's what we did that first day was just cruised and like looked at spots where people were at and where they weren't, you know, and we're just coming out of the shotgun season. So a lot of these areas have been blasted through for the last two weeks from the first and second shotgun season because late muzzleloader starts the day after the second shotgun season ends. So there's actually, there's a lot of gun hunting that takes place through the month of December in Iowa. Pretty much the whole month of December. Yep, yep, and it's just one season after another. Now you can only buy, you can only get one buck tag for any one season or one any any deer tag. So that kind of helps spread some of the pressure out, but still with the the ability to party hunt in those first two gun seasons, and it's crazy that there's not, I, at least I don't think there is, I don't think there's a cap on like the the maximum number of people you can have. Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, so, it, it, yeah, it's like pretty much, it's pretty much like if you have somebody with you with a buck tag, you can buck hunt pretty much as long as they're yeah. cool with, as long as they're cool with sharing a tag, I suppose. Yep. And like, the yeah. party hunting is only legal in the first two shotgun seasons. Mm-hmm. So in the late muzzleloader season, in the early muzzleloader season, you, you're not allowed to party hunt. Mm-hmm. So what I was thinking the whole time was that, okay, well, Late muzzleloader has traditionally been less hunting pressure than the first or the second shotgun season. And I was like, well, I'm going to go out there when there's fewer people that, because you and I talked about this earlier, because I was debating on getting that first gun season tag and hunting with Jake and his buddies or Mm -hmm. going to Arkansas. And we eventually decided to go to Arkansas. So that made up my decision to get the late muzz tag. It was either, it was get the first gun, which is an early December, or that late muzz, which started on the 19th. But since we, you know, obviously decided to go to Arkansas that week, I didn't get the first gun tag. And Jake and his buddies had a heck of a time. You know, they killed, what did Zimmy kill, three bucks? Three. Yeah, Yeah, that's freaking wild. Um... (laughs) But anyway, that's how I got to that. That's how I ended up with that late muzzleloader tag. And I did the one thing that really surprised me was the amount of people that we saw. Yes, I did not expect. And, you know, with with it being late muzz, you can't party hunt like we just talked about. So I didn't figure there'd be a lot of drives going on. That was not the case at all. Really? Oh, yeah. Like huge van with like. 15 Amish dudes in it just climbed out and started pushing everything sideways, you know. And me and Ted were freaking out and everything. But, like, I mean, we can kind of go through the days if you want to chronologically. Yeah, yeah I'd like to hear it all. But we, we started off just scouting that first day looking for pressure, and we found some spots that weren't getting hit too hard. And I actually saw two really nice bucks that first evening. I filmed them from like three quarters of a mile away, but they're right next to a dang parking lot. And I was like, man, I, I hope that they're there, you know, when we get the right wind to get in there and hunt them. Cause it was a bad wind that night and Ted was on his way back from, you know, visiting family. 
So it was just me flying solo and I was watching these things from three quarters of a mile away. So anyway, the next day rolls around and we're like, finally got a good, we got a good wind to go in there and we're gonna go after these things. But there's people in there. As soon as we pulled down the road, there wasn't just one guy. It was like they were pushing the whole thing. The whole thing. Like shots going off in, in different directions. And as soon as we walked down there to the lot, because we parked up the road, we walked down there to the lot, we could see a guy sitting down in the woods 100 yards from it in orange. So we just bailed. We we're like, no, we're going somewhere else. You know, so that acts plan A. Yeah. Because you know they bumped into those bucks if those oh, bucks yeah. were in the same spot. So, and we, a lot of times, if we see the people driving like that, we'll try to get in the mix, you know, and maybe not get right in the middle of it, but figure out which way they're pushing and if there's any escape routes that they're not covering and maybe jump in the side or something in where we can get in there safely, but still hunt some of that forced movement. There was no way me, me and Ted were looking at it and like, there's no way we can get in here. This guy's right here and this is the only access. So we bailed and went to a different spot and we got down there first thing in the morning where we could, where we could glass a long distance and immediately ran into another hunter. Wasn't driving or anything. He was just set up observing, but he was observing too low. He, he was down there in the bedding in really flat terrain and had his gun up and he was looking out there across it, but I was like, he couldn't see much. And me and Ted were up high back behind him mainly just because he was in there and we didn't want to screw his hunt up. Mm -hmm. But we actually had the, the more superior vantage point so we could look way down in there. And wow. we ended up seeing several bucks and this guy could not see him. We kept looking down there at him and he's just like looking around <laughs> like, you know, no big deal. Just everybody's freezing their ass off, including us <laughs> and him. So he's just like super bundled up and looking around, doesn't see these bucks out in front of him. So me and Ted basically, long story short, we farted around there in the middle of the day and waited until he left. And he made this big long loop, walked a, you know, a couple of these roads around and then walked past our truck at like noon. And Ted looked at, looked at him, he's like, he's done. He's done. <laughs> and I'm like, you don't think he'll go back in there? And Ted's like, no, nah, man, he's cashed in. Cause you can <laughs> see the guy was just slumped over like he'd been hiking all morning. He got back to his truck and he left. So me and Ted dove right in there where we saw those bucks and uh, ended up jumping a much, much bigger buck than the two that we saw that morning. The two that we saw that morning were good ones. And the, this is kind of, this is probably something we'll spend a bunch of time talking about that you and I were actually texting about. Mm -hmm. We could see that spot. It was only 150 yards from where that guy was set up. And we could see this little patch of pin oaks out here in the middle of this bottom. And there's, there's grass out there, it's about chest high. We could see that little patch of pin oaks from the ridge that we were on that morning and we never saw him there. We literally saw does walk right through there. We saw little bucks go right through there. Those two bigger bucks were deeper in the bottom. They were even further off, but they were moving at first light. So we could see them. We saw all these deer zigging and zagging across this thing and never once did we see this buck. He must have either been standing there watching everything going on, just not moving, or he was bedded the entire time. But he was an absolute magnum, like big buck. 
and we blew him out of there like a rabbit out of a brush pile. So we ended up setting up, had a bunch of those Amish guys come in, just completely surround <laughs> us. Me and Ted are both getting pretty scared because we, you know, they're just looking at us and then walking straight at us. They don't care. Right. Um, we, we wound up seeing a bunch of deer and then uh, didn't, see it, didn't see any of those other bucks and we, we bailed and we left that spot. So that day it was like 15, 20 degrees. It's pretty cold, but not miserable cold. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess before we get into the day that we killed this thing, I mean, that, that buck reminded me so much of where he was standing at and where he was bedded in that bottom, the biggest buck mm-hmm. of that time that you guys were hunting that were you guys doing a push or were you just going in slipping into that area first light Uh, in the morning when it was uh this is when you guys saw um there was a big buck and like a pile of other deer they were all around him and you guys did could not see the big buck because he was the only one that wasn't moving he was standing there in the edge was it with keith and and jake and ted were on the other side is that the one yeah i think so Yep. Yeah, so that would have been, um, that was an evening hunt, and we had heard, we had, like, went into this spot thinking that there was going to be a food source there, while there wasn't, and it was this big CRP field. No, 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 different one, different hunt. Different one. Different hunt. This is the one where, like, you've got the gun up, I'm pretty sure it's first thing in the morning, Mm -hmm. and you're looking at these these deer that are across the, the cove or the creek or whatever from you Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and the whole time in the camera you can see this buck standing there but you guys can't see him and like you've got your you've got your scope because there's so much chaos going on behind him you remember that yeah yeah i i mean no actually i don't remember specifically but i know i know i should and i will there was a there was a push going on you guys might have even it might have been jake and some other guys pushing to you I got you now. We pushed in that morning and we started bumping deer and some does just kind of bumped off and we were just standing there. Jake was hunting it the other way or, or pushing the other way. I can't remember. And yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. And honestly, I don't even think we saw that buck until we watched the footage later when we got back to the house and we put it on. We're like, oh, nice. There was one right there that we probably could have probably could have shot at had we just seen him but yeah he wasn't doing anything and all the other deer were moving yeah i remember exactly what you're talking about now yeah and i remember getting you guys getting back to the house and you being like really pissed off because you're like (laughs) holy crap there's a big buck in the footage and we didn't even see him and it was easy to to miss him because like he's standing back in some cover and there's all these other deer that are running past him well that's exactly what we did that morning except we couldn't see this buck in the footage. Like I looked back through it meticulously, tried to find him in this grass and I couldn't. But if we would have just been patient and sat on top of that ridge and just watched that bottom for two or three hours, the odds are we probably would have seen him stirring around down there. Cause he was, he was half the distance to us from the, the two big bucks that we saw. So we're glassing and seeing all this activity go on, and the biggest buck in that whole bottom has got a hunter 100 yards from him, and then he's got me and Ted up there 300 yards from him, and none of the three of us saw him the entire time. 
We saw all the other deer, but that's just because he what he either was standing there in one spot looking. Either way, either way you put it, he was not moving like the rest right. of the deer. He was so right I, there. One thing that I was what that makes me think on that situation just based off other other situations that are similar do you think that he saw that other guy by chance or heard him come in and was just like you know what i'm gonna hang tight even though all these other deer gave up on it he knew something maybe was up and just was like laying low that's very possible because the other guy was bumping deer around down where he was out below us like we could see deer running through the grass that he was bumping into because he was trying to stand up on top of some brush piles to get some visibility to see down there um and he was he was jumping some deer they he he definitely could have done that because yeah. that's what those old bucks that's a lot of time their number one defense is just to stand there yeah. and not move and then hunker down i mean i i saw a big one do that during the rut when i was cruising around and i'm betting that he had a doe with him but i'm not sure because i never saw her anyway all these these young bucks run across the road in front of me and i'm looking out in this grass and all i see is just the tops of these tines out there and i pulled my binos up i was like holy crap that's a huge one mm-hmm. and he's looking right at the truck 50 yards from the road and he feels super protected wherever he's at because the only thing i can see is his rack and then uh, like i watch him for five minutes and then his head turns like this and he disappears he just laid straight down in that grass he never moved an inch, and all those other bucks were stirring around and stuff. I th- I think that that happens more than we think oh, with I, these I would big agree. old suckers. Remember, especially with the, one, the bucks on public land that are getting hunted a bunch. Like they have to find, they have to sort of invent ways to not die, and yeah. that's that's a hell of a good way to do it is just not move um, and just observe everything around them. Do you remember the one? with uh logan in 2018 i was uh following him and i was filming him and i remember holding the camera facing him and i turned and looked to my left and in that tall grass right up against the water i looked up and there was a rack sticking out of the grass yeah yeah and yeah i was that just was in first gun wasn't it yeah or second it was first so that's early december yep yep and that's and that's probably I would say that would have been the third day. I think it was the third day of season. So there had been two days of like heavy, you know, bump and pressure. Yeah. And I'm sure that he was feeling that. And I think what happened in that situation is he heard us walking down that edge just enough to be like, hmm, I better check that out. He stood up. And whether, I'll never know, but whether he saw us or you know, knew or was suspicious that we were people, I guess I'll never truly know. But what I do know is, is he laid right back down. Same thing that you just said you observed in November. He went straight back down and we sat there and waited, hoping that he would, you know, make a move at last light. And I remember we grunted, we raked trees and he didn't do anything. And it was, I don't know, maybe... 30 minutes of daylight left and it was one of those gray snowy evenings anyway so it was hard to see and we started getting impatient and we pretty much just went right at him and I remember the last thing that I saw was and it's funny because in hindsight I actually just pulled this one up the other day is why it's on you know front of my mind I just was 
scrubbing through it the other day and watched our approach. There's a lot of things that I would do differently now. We went straight at him versus like, I think now I would have tried to circle around and try to come in, not just head on, tried to use a little bit of cover, got more on his elevation. But regardless, there's all those little details that I could dive into. But the point of it is, is the last thing I saw was him in his bed staring right at us. And I was like, Logan, there he is, there he is, there he is. And like, as soon as he saw me seeing him, he, he bolted. Done. It yep. was over. That now, was I'll never know. I'll never know if he was playing it that way on purpose or if we would have just been a little bit more patient, if he would have stood up with 10 minutes of light left and just milled around. I guess I don't know, but what I do know is there was a certain point that he did see us and he waited until we saw him. And, you know, there's countless other examples of that, but it's like bucks seem to have a tendency to lay low like that where other deer don't, you know? Yeah. But anyway, especially sure late we'll season, back. man. Like I've been yeah. thinking about this a bunch, like the majority of, of gun hunters in these December gun seasons up in the Midwest, like they, I guess this is when the majority of the hunters are in the woods mm-hmm. in a state like Iowa, where you got gun season all month of December, like the gun season isn't taking place during the rut. Like it is in Missouri, mm-hmm. in Missouri, a lot of guys sit and kill really big bucks. But yep. that's because it's the rut, you know? I mean, things, a big one can saunter by randomly at any point in the middle of November. But in December, it's completely different. Mm-hmm. Different ball game entirely. And the, for the amount of hunters that are in the woods in December in Iowa, there's not very many really mature bucks killed. They're just, mm-hmm. it, like, there's some on public land that, we've, that we see, but the majority of the bucks that are getting shot are are nice younger bucks yep. that like we talked about the other day when you're doing pushes which is what the majority of people do during those those shotgun seasons is they party hunt and they push mm-hmm. when they're doing those big pushes deer will come out predictably you know on these these main trails or these main crossings or these main escape routes and you may see a bunch of does and younger bucks and all kinds of deer coming past you but rarely does the big buck do that rarely and, and that's why a lot of those folks are killing two-year-old bucks and does, which is super fun. Like, I'm all yeah. for that. Like, it, I mean, that hunt of Jake's and his buddies look fun as hell, yeah. um, <laughs> quite frankly. I mean, I've done that in, my, in the past, and it's super fun. So uh-huh. I'm not saying don't do that. I'm just saying, like, if you're trying to kill a mature buck and target that deer, you have to do exactly that because they're not, they just don't act like the rest of the deer. Mm-hmm. And like you were saying the other day when we were texting back and forth, they almost always shoot out the side, they lay low, they wait until you're past and then go right back out the way that you just came from. Mm-hmm. They, have a, they have a different card that they're going to play because they don't care about what the rest of the deer are doing unless they're bedded right directly with them. Like, yep. if they're bedded right there with them, they might come out behind a group of does or something like that. Mm-hmm. But often that's not the case. Come December, yeah. they're, they're worried about themselves and just surviving. It seems to me like the only time that a big buck comes out with the rest of the deer, like right down the pipe, as I would call it, kind of to your main escape route that you're pushing towards, about the only time it seems that they do that is, I would describe it as confusion. Like... I think of the one that I missed with uh, Ted 
um, in I think 2018. And that wasn't that wasn't the biggest oldest buck, but he was a solid buck. He was the biggest yeah. buck that we'd pushed out that that season up to that point. Maybe the one only the biggest one that we pushed out that whole season in general. But and he happened, was with a group of deer, but a big group of does. And he yeah. got you could tell if you watch that video. When he comes out, he's looking real confused, like, I, I don't know how I even got myself here. And what I think happens, at least my theory on it, is somebody in his group gets bumped ahead of him. So he sees a doe jump up and run, and he's like, ooh, I got to get out of here too. And he doesn't really even know what they're running from. So it, it, I, in my head, it's always been you confuse him and you get lucky, which, yep. you know, whether you're – whether so i guess thinking of it from a drive standpoint i don't really want that to be the only way like always trying to tighten up the drive strategy um i don't want that to be the case in a perfect world yeah that happens every time but he doesn't do that nine out of ten times it's just like very lucky that you get him to do that so it's like if you are driving to me we've had the better luck killing the bucks on the oddball route or basically blocking that oddball route to make him go down the pipe if you will and like yeah the one that, and you you guys learn from that one in that mm-hmm. spot because you killed a much bigger buck in there the next year or the year after that next and he year, was yep. using he was using that back door escape and he's the only deer we saw he's the only one yes Which is they're insane. just the biggest the biggest oldest ones are so fascinating to me when they're on public where they live in that space that they're always getting pestered by something because when you finally get at one of them it's like man that thing is people give them so much credit because they're so smart they're not necessarily smart they've just figured out a way not to die yeah and like that particular you know strategy that they're using is just one that very other very few other people are thinking of otherwise they'd be dead um, and that's what made me think of that buck or, you know, all these other hunts that we're talking about is like, man, that is a classic mature buck in late season. He is in there amongst all the rest of these deer, but he's not necessarily with them. He's bedded close by and he's in a spot and he's acting completely differently than the rest of them. He's not moving. He is in thick cover where he can see out. And he feels super comfortable when he's bedded or standing and he doesn't have, he's not in any rush. Mm-hmm. And I guess we're going to, we'll circle back to this in a minute when we talk about the day that me and Ted killed that, this thing. But we should probably go back to talking about the weather. Because yeah. um, that day that, so the first day of the season to back up here, I scouted, then me and Ted hunted there um, in 15, 20 degrees. We had a good day. That's when we jumped that big buck. The following day was a blizzard. That was the big, that was like the snowpocalypse, huge blizzard that, you know, everybody was losing their mind about. I tried going to the grocery store and it was like, there's, forget about it. Like people are just parked out in the street with their flashers on, just completely losing their mind. Like shelves cleaned out, everything. Like we got six inches of snow coming. It's going to get zero (laughs) degrees. We're not going to make it, you know? (laughs) <laughs> that's so anyway classic it panic was, yeah oh yeah so it was one of those storms and it was i think it was 14 or 15 when we went to bed 
and we woke up the next morning we were talking like i don't know what we're gonna do we're just gonna see how what it's like in the morning and go from there so we woke up and looked out the window and it's snowing sideways it's negative three and it's blowing like 40 miles an hour just white and we're sitting in the house, you know, making a smoothie, drinking coffee, debating on what we're going to do. And we're getting our stuff together because we're going to go hunt. But we basically threw out all of our plans prior to that because the days before that, we were worried about all this hunting pressure. Then we're looking out at this and we're like, nobody in, in their right mind is going to be crazy enough to go out in this. So we're, the hunting pressure factor is no more now because it's a blizzard. Like it's, it's just about half dangerous to be out in, in the first place. Right. Um, so we start looking for, we start looking around at the, at the map, like, man, where could we get where we could even survive for an hour out there today? Let forget the deer. Like, where can we go where we're not going to freeze out immediately and where we can actually hunt? Mm-hmm. And me and Ted both had the same idea at the exact same time. It's like, dude, there's a bunch of these South facing slopes that are full of it's just thick nasty cedars and hedge and briars and locusts and there's the there's these perfect south facing slopes that form this bowl at the bottom mm-hmm. and it ain't far you know uh, it's just up the road it's pretty easy to get to so we're like let's just dive in there um you know it's been blowing all night like this surely deer are going to be bedded up in that bowl out of the wind because if you went out like if you went out in the area where we hunted the day before big flat open creek bottom i mean we were in a tree and it was frigid and it was 20 degrees and blowing 15 miles an hour i just could not even imagine being there the following morning when it was negative three and blowing 40. well and if you don't want to be the deer probably don't either no 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 so we we got in there and I had them big pack boots on that I, you know, those things are super warm, but you can't walk worth a darn in them. <laughs> yeah. It's just like you're walking in astronaut boots. I had those things on. I had boot warmers and those and Ted, we had hand warmers with, you know, hot hands shoved in those, two pairs of gloves, and then our faces completely covered. And we got in there and it was snowing so hard we can only see like 100 yards in front of us. And we're walking in there at first light and we get right down in there about a hundred yards from where we were wanting to set up. And I, I see two outlines of deer across the bottom from us. Like, holy crap, there's two deer right there. And me and Ted are in the wide open. Like there's no cover right there. We're in the wide open. snow camo on, right? Yeah, we did. We had snow camo and then our hunter orange on over that. Mm -hmm. But you know, they can't see orange. Right. It probably just looks like white or whatever. Solid. yeah yeah but it's better than just wearing like all black or all dark camo that makes you just look like a you know a barrel sitting out there so we're going out there and we look up and it's like crap there's two deer right there so i pulled up binos two bucks younger bucks but the crazy thing was is we're in the wide open and we're moving around and these things cannot see us they cannot see us at all because it's snowing so hard and we're like, well, we can probably actually move and get in a little better position where we can see further up in there. Because these things are right at the end of the bedding area. But they are in the, they're in the exact spot where we figured they're going to be. Like down and out of the wind. And they're not moving very far, but they're up feeding. 
at 20 minutes after daylight. So they can't see us, and we just walking through the blizzard, walked right past them, and dropped down into the into the next little bowl. There's there's a main ridge, and then there's three or four fingers that come off of it, and every one of those fingers is south facing. So and they're all loaded with cedars on the top. So you can imagine on every single one of those fingers, there's just deer stacked in there, and there's more coming because it's in the middle of a blizzard, like they're going for that protected area. And when we hit that second finger, we looked up on that hill and we could see, you know, another dark blob moving around in there. You, you can barely tell it's a deer until it starts moving. Mm-hmm. So I'm watching these deer and I can't tell what they are because it's just blowing sideways. I pulled down my binos and I saw like this funny looking log, I thought, at the edge of the brush. It's like 120 yards from us and we're in the wide open. We're just, there's no cover where we're at. I mean, other than grass that's knee high. And I'm like, I think there's a deer down below those. And Ted's filming these deer up on the hill above them. And I pulled up my binos and I looked and looked and looked and I couldn't tell. I was like, I think it's a deer. I think it's a deer. And I kept looking and I'd have to take them down every two seconds and brush them off because they're freezing. The moisture's in them and like it's snow is just, yeah, it was just it was really a ridiculous situation for us to be out there in the first place. But I finally got to looking at it and I was like, it's a deer and I, and I bet you it's a buck mm-hmm. because it's standing there in one spot and it's a big body deer, but you can't see, you just can't tell any detail about it because it's snowing so hard. And it took me and Ted like 10 minutes to get the camera on him because it was snowing so hard and the thing's not moving. Yeah. So we're can't like, I'm, yeah, Ted can't find him. I'm trying to explain to him where he's at, and I keep losing him. Every time I pull my binos down, I've got to refine my little landmark that he could be on. And uh, it's hard to explain, but it's just, it was so difficult to even keep eyes on him in the middle of that blizzard. And I, I, I got back on him again. Ted finally gets on him, and we're looking through the camera, and we hit that, like, uh, focus magnifier yep. in there. And Ted's like, man, I think that's a buck. And then there was just like a few seconds that went by where it didn't snow quite as hard. You know how it kind of comes in waves. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I saw him just turn his head like that away from us and look at those deer behind the hill. It's like, oh, yeah, it's a buck, and it's a pretty good one. But I couldn't tell anything about him. I'm like, and at that moment, I realized I have a gun. Right. <laughs> <laughs> what am I doing? <laughs> you know, he's 120 yards away. Uh-huh. Uh, been bow hunting for two and a half months or whatever. It's like, crap, I could kill this thing if I get yeah. my get on my sticks. So like I'm getting on the sticks and Ted's getting the camera and everything settled. I finally get on him and I'm I'm still not sure about taking a shot because it's I can't really tell what's in between him and I. I can just right. see that it's a deer and then it's a buck. Mm-hmm. So Ted's filming him and I'm trying to figure out how big he is and if he's got brush in between you know, him and I, because he was in some thick multi-floor rows, kind of back in there a little bit, and he lays down. And as soon as he lays down, you can kind of see that rack rock back as he lays down. It's like, oh, crap, that's a buck, and he just laid down. And, like, now we're in a great position, except that we're freezing, and we can't be out here very long. All right. So we, we stalked up there and got in a little better position where we're like 100 yards from him in the bed. And we can't see him, but we, we marked the tree that he was by. Mm-hmm. 
so we're just sitting there and about an hour and a half, two hours go by and I'm like, dude, Ted, if this was under any other circumstance, we just sit on this thing until he stands up and shoot him. Right. Like, cause he can't smell us. We got perfect wind. We got a, a gun, so we don't need to go right up there. We can see him good right where he's at as soon as he stands up. But like, we just physically can't stay out there any longer. We're yeah. gonna freeze to death. Right. So, I mean, we finally made the call at like 10 in the morning. Let's get out of here and just come back in in the evening. Mm-hmm. And we, we kind of devised a way to get in and out of there without spooking him. So we bailed out of there. We got back to the truck, went back to the house, warmed up, you know, hung our clothes up and whatever, drank a bunch more coffee. And we went in that eight, we didn't want to go in too early that evening because it was even colder. That was the strange thing about that storm is it was negative three or four in the morning when we woke up and by 2 p.m. it was minus 10 with a wind chill of negative 49. So we're trying, we're just waiting. Like usually you want to get in there, you know, and get set up so that you don't bugger anything. It's like we're waiting as long as we can till the time when we feel like we've got to be in there. And me and Ted are talking at the truck like, dude, if it works out, we're gonna be able to crawl in there and get set up and hopefully just shoot one right then. Right. Like, because we wanna get there right when they first start moving. And we got in there and that's exactly what happened. We just got super lucky, but um, we crawled in there to the same exact spot and I no more than got the stick set up. Ted got the camera on the tripod and I turned around and I was like, oh my God, Ted, huge buck right here. And the thing is just standing there. This is kind of the whole theme of this late season hunt. It's just big mature bucks just standing there or laying there in one spot and not moving. Cause that buck that morning did that. He did that for 15 minutes while all the other deer were moving around and feeding. He just stood there and like chewed on stuff, never moved. And then he laid down in that very spot. And later that day, this is a different buck that I ended up killing. He steps out to the edge where he can see up the bottom where we're at. And he is just standing there in on, and on the footage. I don't know how long it is. It's probably like close to eight, nine minutes where he's just standing there and he's looking right our direction. And I was getting nervous because I'm like, dude, I think he might be able to see us. And he's just going to, I was like at any moment, he's just going to bolt, but he's facing us at 150 yards. And I'm so nervous and cold that the crosshairs are just going like this. So I didn't feel comfortable shooting at him. And I was really scared that we weren't gonna get him. Uh-huh. And then he laid his ears back and he just kind of blinked a little bit and he and I could tell he turned his head just like a little bit. I'm like, hell, he can't see us. Uh-huh. He's just looking across this bottom. He's just acting like a mature buck does. Yep. He's just looking. And once I saw him kind of, once I saw his demeanor relax a little bit, I relaxed because I'm like, okay, we're in control of this situation here. Mm-hmm. He can't smell us and he's coming out to feed. Like as long as we're patient, we're going to get a shot. And then within a couple of minutes, he took three or four steps and turned broadside and I shot him. But he was, be- it, this was a completely different buck that we didn't even see that morning. He's even bigger than the one that we filmed yep. earlier in the morning through the snow. And he was laying right there and we never saw him. Never yeah. saw him all day until he stood up and he just, he must've just walked to that edge and he was just standing there observing everything before he finally turned broadside. He'd come out and was feeding on locust pods in the snow. 
But first off, luckily first with off, the weather, it worked out. First off, for having you haven't not hunted with a scope for however many years that was with the scoped rifle. You've made some pretty damn good shots with the muzzleloader in the last five. You've made some I pretty don't know, good but, shots. <laughs> I don't know, pretty lucky shots. This thing. <laughs> one and I done mean, on all of them, though, right? Like the one with Greg, pers- I, the ones I think of is the ones with one with Greg and the same year that Brody and I hunted that gun bowl. And then that, which was a, a nice, like, what, 100-yard shot roughly? And that was a 150. 150. I mean, you've made multiple 150 shots with that muzzle loader. I mean, that's pretty good, son. And I missed the, my biggest buck with it at 70 yards. Yeah, that's <laughs> And true. then had to that's reload true. and smashed him on the second one. But I totally choked on that first one. Like, yeah, I, I just I pulled and shot right over him. But this was one of those deals where he was about 150 out, and they were just so shaky when he was facing me. Like, Jake mm-hmm. killed his buck earlier this fall with my gun. Yep. And he was slightly quartering to him, and he just put it right on him and just smashed him right in the front, dropped him in his tracks. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about that shot the whole time I'm looking at him, and that deer's looking our direction. Like, man, can I shoot him in the front like that? And I feel like you could, but, you know, they got to be dead steady on him. Yeah. Well, because the risk is, the risk that I don't always see with a gun is – the same thing you would worry about with a bow is if you just single lung him even with a gun mm-hmm. or even with a slow gun, I should say. Because, like, what, what I mean by that is, like, a muzzleloader or, like, a straight wall like yep. we can use in some of the states that we hunt a lot. But with a slow gun, it's a little bit different than if you had a .30-06. If you had a .30-06 or a 270 or something, I'd probably be more likely to, to force that shot um in more yeah because if it just hits bone on either side it's gonna like it's just gonna explode in there and he's toast the shock's gonna crumple him yeah that's exactly what i was thinking too was like man if this thing's shaking left to right if i miss left to right i'm just gonna go down one side or the other and risk Mm -hmm. one longing him or missing him i remember the one that uh it was before i was there but i remember watching it was the one uh, i think you tracked it with him some at least was that one greg shot at winkies that he one lunged or he like i think it was quartered away but he hit it too far forward and he had to track that deer i'm pretty sure the next day for a while and had to end up getting a follow-up shot on it if i remember right i remember watching a video like that but that's again with the slower gun like that or you know something that's not pushing a bullet super fast it just it is a little risky so i mean i and at a distance too you're talking it's far man i don't know i don't understand how people kill things at 200 and beyond with a scope unless you just because like i'm shooting off sticks Mm -hmm. and i remember that buck i killed that one in the gun bowl with greg at 150 it took me 10 minutes to shoot him (laughs) because i could not get the crosshairs calmed down enough on there i finally was thinking like you know take your half breath Deep breath, half breath out, and then hold it and squeeze at the same time while you're focusing on a spot. And I finally was able to do that and shoot him, and I hit him right where I was wanting to. But, man, it's just it's, it's intimidating because you, you can have it on that spot, and you can hold it there for a few seconds. But then if you, it just a slight shift in the oh, crosshairs yeah. on his tail or it's right. on his nose or whatever. Like, it's just way different. Um, I than, feel... I- I feel confident making shots at distance. My problem is, is, I and I shot a I shot a ton of 
rifle when I was younger. Me and I've told you a million times, me and my, bu- me and my buddies shot groundhogs constantly. So our like yeah. long range practice was consistent. So as far as, you know, getting a crosshair on something in the wide open, I feel like I don't hesitate too much where I struggle. And it kind of goes back to that, that slow gun thing is if I'm shooting a muzzle loader, for example, which is what I use mostly, I use a 450 sun, but I've still technically never hunted with a high power rifle because of living in Ohio and Iowa. Right. And, um, the thing that I struggle with that I know like Jake doesn't deal with in our conversations about gun hunting is he's always like, Oh yeah, some brush in the way, just put it right on him and shoot it. It'll be fine. Well, Jake uses a 30 out six in Wisconsin, you know, like yeah. using a muzzle loader in, in like a, in a video clip, even in 120 frame per second, you can see that muzzle loader bullet, like yeah. moving through the air if you got good light. And it's like, when that bullet's moving that slow, brush is the thing that worries me. Like, and even with my 450, like the two bucks that I shot um, in Ohio the last couple of years, one was with the 450, one was with the muzzleloader. The one was 40 yards away, and I probably could have squeezed one through there. I was that was the one with Ben, and he was feeding on acorns. We had time, so I was patient with it. But I remember thinking to myself, like, man. If you try to force one and that bullet starts tumbling and hits him not where I want or misses him, like I'm going to be so mad. And then the same thing with the one with the muzzleloader is like I just wanted to make sure that I had a perfect opening. I think that's the one the one well, thing this that kind of makes I, it This buck that we bow. just killed, um, you can see the bullet hit the branch right in front of the deer like that in that clip that I sent you. Mm-hmm. You can see it hit that branch and the snow fly off the branch. And when I got up to the deer, like it deflects that bullet and that branch is right in front of the deer. I mean, it's only a few feet away. It's not like it, you were hitting it right out of the muzzle. It's like you, we had just hit it and it deflected it a few inches back. Like it, it still went right through the top of the rib cage. Um, just a, just high center on both sides, but it was, it was straight up the leg dead center and it hit that branch and deflected back just a hair so that made me that made me super nervous and that's why i didn't take that shot that earlier in the day in the blizzard was just because i couldn't see right like i could i could put it on him and i could see where his head was and his body was and like i could get it close enough to behind the shoulder where i probably would have killed it but i just couldn't tell what was in between you weren't positive no, I wasn't positive and I knew like that he has no clue we're here. So yeah. might as well wait for the right opportunity. Well, but the majority also, of the deer we've killed with that thing are, we, me and Ted were talking about it the other days. Like they're right about 150 yards, most of them. A lot or several of them are anyway. Yeah, and it's like, I think the thing too that's different about a muzzleloader, you know, that's, that's definitely the number one thing that goes in, on in my head is, once you pull that trigger, you're probably, I mean, even the fastest reloaders I've ever seen are still probably a good 30 plus seconds away. I mean, and that's talking fast because me, the way that I get all worked up, I figure you're probably the same. It's like, I'm talking, I'm probably going to be a minute and a half best yeah. you know, to get reloaded. Yeah. So it's like, that's different than if you've got your bolt action or your semi-auto or your, or your pump action rifle where you can just get another one off quick. I think that 
is, I mean, that's always been the fun part about muzzleloader hunting to me is, is you have to be super particular, or at least I choose to be super particular to know that when I do pull the trigger, that's it. You know, that's where I need it to be or where I want it to be. And then, you know, it's kind of just more up to you versus if you, if you shoot one and, you know, it, it hits a branch and it tumbles. I mean, it's just, it's crazy. The opportunities that you don't get with the muzzleloader or even, or even something that's slower, like the 450 or 350 or something. It's, it's just, but not to say that there's anything wrong with hunting with a high power, because I certainly would love to do that at some point too, but it's, it is just shot selection has to be a little bit more like a bow, or at least that's how I view it. Oh yeah. And like that muzzleloader, you got to shoot that thing off sticks a lot of the time or something just because it's like the ignition process is slower and then the bullet is flying slower down the barrel than a, than a high powered bullet is mm-hmm. like it ain't it if if you flinch on a high powered rifle a little bit on some of those closer shots you're not going to have near the you know the i guess decreased accuracy down range because the bullet's leaving the the barrel so quickly and it's <laughs> right. there just like that um but I've noticed that with the muzzleloaders, like, man, shooting it off those sticks really helps. And it, it's super accurate. I mean, I'm surprised at how far you can shoot with that thing. I, if I was a good enough shot, I could kill a deer with it at 200 or 250 yards. Definitely. But I just, I have a hard enough time keeping it on them at 150. Like, I've killed a couple of them beyond 150, but whew, that was another one of those deals where it was just like, okay, I'm going to try it. And I couldn't get it. So I was like, pulled it off the sticks, breathed a little bit and then put it back on there and had to do that like three or four times before I finally got enough confidence that them crosshairs were steady enough that I could start squeezing that thing off. But, and that's what's going through your head too, the whole time is like, well, there's no second chance. It's like you get one, you get one chance. And the other wrinkle that was thrown into this was, I didn't know if the thing was going to go off. Yeah, because it was covered in snow that morning. Like there, uh-huh. me and Ted were both completely covered. The only saving grace that we had there was it was so cold that nothing it just fr- didn't melt. Nothing melted. Yep. So like there, that dry, thing was kind of. Yeah, like it was a dry snow. snow. Yeah, super yeah. dry snow, and we just left it in the truck. I mean, it was a block of freaking ice when I shot, but um, it it hadn't melted. Mm-hmm. you know and got any moisture down in there the one thing too that we've talked about with the muzzleloader versus a high power too um that's kind of interesting is the the running shot and how much that changes because with a high power you want to put it you know i'm thinking of like your average trotting not full tilt i'm just talking trotting you know trotting shot where you're able to keep it on him and move with him in that situation with the high power, you know, Jake's always told me that he puts it right behind the shoulder. Me having never hunted with that, hunting with shotguns and muzzleloaders growing up, when I um, heard of guys talking about shooting running deer, it's always a lead. You know, always putting it just just up here in front of them on that trotting shot. And one that comes to mind is when Hayden shot that buck in Ohio last year, the deer was like 30 yards away trotting through the through the timber at a consistent pace a shot that like we're going you know we're going for and also in you know 
in Hayden's mind too that Buck is running right to the next guy down the line too. So he takes a shot and he immediately is like, I think I hit him back. And I think probably what Hayden did, being used to hunting with the high power, put it right on Wisconsin, him. I think he put it right where he wanted and ended up being whatever, six inches back. And then luckily Shane put another one in him too. And it was, it would have been a lethal shot. I just think that it would have been that first one alone was just a, you know, just a touch back to where it was mostly liver. And yeah, I mean, that just goes to show how much that slow, that slow gun, it's not immediate. And like you said too, the ignition process, like when I shoot a muzzleloader, the one thing I do, it's so subtle because it's like a millisecond, but it's definitely time compared to pulling a, pulling the trigger on a rifle or a, even, a, or even a shotgun. It's immediate, right? Trigger yep. clicks and boom. With that muzzleloader, there's like the tiniest, tiniest little it's a delay crack. still. So yeah. it's a click pop. Yeah. Click boom. Yep. Because yep. it's got to ignite that powder. You know, that, that primer is so far away down the breech plug from the powder. Whereas on a shotgun shell or a, you know, a high powered compressed rifle shell or something like that, that primer's sitting right on the powder or right next to it. You know, it might be a wad in between it or something like that. But, but it's. Those are the, and that thing is all airtight in there and, you know, on a compressed high powered rifle shells, like that sucker is going off immediately. But with the muzzleloader, there's a, there's a very, very slight delay. That's why you can't flinch. If you, <laughs> if you flinch a whole bunch and I hold that gun loose, like I scope knocked myself the other day in the yard oh, yeah. shooting it just because I, you know, I would usually be holding a shotgun real tight against my shoulder, a high power rifle or something like that so that it doesn't kick you as bad. But when you're holding it tighter like that, you're, if you do flinch, it's just going to magnify it. Yeah. That's yeah. what's nice about having that thing on those sticks um, is it's, it just, it, I take them everywhere with me when I'm hunting with that muzzleloader. And, you know, sidebar here, there's a couple other things that went into this hunt, I think, that are that are real important that I took for granted, but because they're things that we've learned slowly over time. And the, the first one is like the load and the muzzleloader. Mm -hmm. And the second one is how we dress. Yes. The clothing. But the, like those we could, topics. The, the load in that muzzleloader has sort of evolved over all of our experiences in the last five or six years. And that thing right now, those Barnes Spitfire bullets or whatever, mm -hmm. or the Barnes, any, any of the Barnes bullets that we've shot. Yep. What, because what, what's the one that you're shooting? It's not the Spitfire TMZ. It's the, I, I, I actually went to the TMZ this year too. <coughs> okay. So I got the blue tip, but previously I was shooting the MZ, which is the straight up hollow point. Right, right. But those have been good too. I mean, when we switched to those bullets a few years ago, that's when I started crushing these things with that muzzleloader. Yep. And yep. it's like, even this shot on this buck, it was a little bit high in, in back of where I was aiming, but it was still through the rib cage. It was like that thing was, when we gutted that deer, it completely, it demolished the, everything in the chest cavity. I mean, the mm -hmm. back half of both lungs was gone. The top of the liver was completely gone. I mean that, and he made it maybe 50 or 60 yards, but I, I'm thinking to myself, like the deer that we have shot and hit them absolutely perfect. They either drop in their tracks or they run a few yards and fall over. Like they're completely toast. 
And in contrast, a few years ago, that buck that we were talking about that me and Greg shot in the gun bowl, that was a bad experience. We killed the buck because it hit him right through the rib cage. But that was with, I don't even remember what those bullets were. It's, they were it's the, the Hornady's or something maybe. Yeah. And there are a lot of ones that are, from what I've heard, are made in the same place. They're just branded differently. I think it's yep. like the, I actually think it's a oh, Thompson Center. Yeah. It might be yep. actually Thompson Center Spitfire. What we're shooting is the Barnes, Barnes. Um, Expander TMZ or MZ. Yeah. But Hornady and Thompson Center um, have that same bullet. It looks pretty much the same. But yeah, it's very similar. But we, and I killed that buck with it, whichever bullet it was. I killed that buck with it, but we found the bullet lodged in the hide on the other side. There was no blood on the snow, and that thing did not appear hurt as he was running off. And luckily, Greg stayed on him with the camera, and you could see him lay down out there. And when I went out there, he was stone dead, like it was through yep. the lungs. But when we found the bullet, it, the, the tip was just bent, like it wasn't mushroomed or anything like it was supposed to be. And that might be in part because it was so cold. I don't know. It could have froze. But regardless, we just shot one in colder temps the other day, and mm -hmm. that thing completely torched this buck. And since we switched to those Barnes bullets and uh, that Blackhorn yeah. 209 powder, it's just money. I mean, it's super. they're super accurate. And if you, that's what me and Ted were talking about. It's like, man, if you pretty much hit that thing on a broadside shot, if you hit that thing anywhere in the front half of the deer, it's going to expand and kill them really, really fast. Like it just does superior amount of damage. So that's, and when we went to those bullets, we started seeing that happen over and over again where we're just drilling them and dropping them or hitting them just off and dropping them within 30, 40 yards. Yep. Yeah, I would agree with that. And having, you know, used a muzzleloader, probably, you know, I, I've used a muzzleloader a lot just because of the seasons, the way they yep. lay in Ohio, you know, different than where everybody else grew up where there was a rifle season. I used them a ton. And, you know, over the years, my dad and I have went through all different types of powder and bullets. And, you know, I would say originally we were using like a, uh, I guess I don't know if originally, but for a long time we used the Pyrodex pellets and yep. uh, power belts. You know, power belts you can buy them, you know, to this day at Walmart really easily. They're they're the easiest to find. Um, plethora of those types of bullets, and same thing with the ones that we had mentioned earlier. You know, they're easy to find. Um, but when we started making this switch, just like you said, it was like night and day difference. Like immediately we're having better luck with accuracy. We're having much more consistent groups. And that's my favorite part about it. You know, that alone is when you're shooting at a target and you're zero in your gun, when you're getting, you know, a three shot group, that's always within a fist, no matter how far that is. I mean, we've done it out the 200 yards and kept it that consistent. And I think, my theory on that part of it, and I, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm no expert, but this is what my theory would be. When you put two pellets in to a gun and then you put a bullet down on top of them, a lot of times you're getting some sort of crush a on crush. that pellet. Yeah. 
So the burn is not consistent every time where, you know, maybe on one load, the front pellet cracks on the bottom and crumples on the bottom, but then the next, the back pellet crumples on top. You know, you're talking about two different burns where if you're using any sort of loose powder, whether it's a, the like triple seven powder or Pyrodex makes loose powder too, but we, we've been using this Blackhorn 209. When you, when you load that, it loads consistent, you know, below the bullet every time. And that burn seems to be faster. And not only is it, is it faster and more consistent, but it's cleaner. Like it's easier to clean. Dude, my yeah. muzzle loaders look so much better now than they did when we were yep. using those pellets. And I just, it's expensive that, stuff too. But like Zimmy is. turned Jake onto it a few years ago, and Jake's the, Jake's the one that told me which load to get when I first got my muzzleloader, because that's I used his gun the first year that I killed that one in Iowa with Greg. Mm. Um, and then I pretty much got the same exact gun, and it's got, I don't know, whatever Vortex 3x9x40, pretty basic scope. Mm -hmm. um, but it's perfect for that 50 to 150-yard distance. Yep. Um, but uh, what I've noticed is like the bullets that we've retrieved out of these deer, oh, the performance is just way better. Like they're, mm -hmm. they're mushrooming out perfect on all sides. And then when you look inside the deer after you kill them, you can see all the damage that it's doing. It's yeah. like night and day difference. So that, that helps a lot, especially on a shot like that one that me and Ted just had, which was a good shot, but it's like top of the lungs. And it's a couple inches below the back strap through the top of that, the rib cage. Like if you hit him there with a bow and with a broadhead that's going through there, you're going to kill him pretty quick, but it's not like you hit him right through the pump house. Right. I mean, you're probably going to have to do some blood trailing and he's going to be, you know, 150, 200 yards out a lot of the time, just depending on what, how the deer reacts, obviously. But um, that was a big thing that I noticed with this buck. Cause it was high, but man, the, the, the amount of damage that it did, there was no way he was making it very far. And then the, the second thing that helped us stay out there, like, cause what the, the one thing was, is Ted was like, well, we're just, let's just go out there and find out if we can't, you know, if we get out there and it's too dangerous and we start getting super cold, we're, we're not going to get far from the truck. Let's just get in there and kind of hang out for a few minutes and see what it's like. Because mm. I've never hunted in anything like this before, not this cold. I've hunted in blizzards, but not when it was the actual temperature of negative 10. Right. Like, and the wind chill was just ridiculous. I was like, are you kidding? We're going out there to hunt in this blizzard, and we get about 50 to 100 yards in the truck, and we're both like, you know what? It's freaking miserable cold, but... I think we can, I think we can manage as long as we get down here out of this wind, I think we'll be all right. And it's slow going cause you got so many clothes on and I've got them giant boots on with all that insulation and stuff in them. And you know, the, the hot hands foot warmers or whatever shoved in the bottoms of them. So it was slow going, but man, once we got down in there out of the wind, we were able to actually stay out there. And that's the main thing. You know, if you're not out there with them, you ain't going to kill them. And there, there, years ago, I would have never even tried to go out in this stuff. But now that we've been there and done that a few times in super cold stuff is like, okay, you got to take care, you got to take care of your face, you got to take care of your hands and you got to take care of your feet.
Yep. Most people have a warm pair of insulated coveralls and they can layer up. Yeah. Like that's pretty common knowledge. And that's all we did was we just had all of the clothes that we owned on pretty much with a heavy pair of coveralls and then the whites going on over top of them, the snow camo. The head, we had those barclavas on and then our THP net gator things, a uh, stocking cap and then the rabbit fur cap on top of it. But the, the boots and the hand warmers were huge because you had to keep your hands in there most of the time. Like you, even with big gloves on, I would have a pair of light gloves on and then a hand warmer in between the light glove and the thick glove on both hands. And then if I had to shoot, I would take the outer glove off on my trigger hand to where I could feel the trigger. But you couldn't keep your hands out of your hand warmers very long. You'd have to have them in there on that heat. Otherwise your fingers would start getting really cold really fast. So once we got in there and got set up with the camera on the tripod, you know, gun on my lap, you could sit there and as long as you didn't have any exposed skin, you could actually stay out there a lot longer than what I thought was possible. But your toes and your fingers are gonna go first. Mm -hmm. And then if your face is exposed for too long, you could start get risk and frostbite on your face. Absolutely. That was something that was really surprising to me is, is like that's just kind of, that's almost as big of a mental hurdle as it is a, a, you know, an issue with your gear. Everybody that I talked to, my old man was like, you need, to, you need to stay in, make sure your pipes don't freeze, don't go out in this. He's like, you're crazier than hell if you do. It's like, well, once we got out there and realized like, no, we got the right gear on, we're dressed appropriately enough and we got all these hot hands and stuff with us to keep our fingers warm, we, we're fine. It's not that big of a deal. Well, I mean, w once we got out of the wind, it really wasn't a problem. But like I, like I was just saying, few years back I would have never even tried it five six yeah. years ago I eight, ten years ago I would have never even went out in that stuff oh I mean it intimidates the hell out of you for sure yeah it's like these these deer were especially the big bucks that's what they were socked into this area because of those conditions and they were moving because of those conditions and we would have missed out on all that well and something I texted you about I sent you that long message the other day because I'd been thinking about it a lot you know, depending on where you're at in the country, you may just not even get, ever get those conditions, you know, or, or very rarely to the point where it may not fall within, you know, the hunting season, even like a lot of times it seems, um, like it's real hit or miss in, in Ohio. And that's the easy example that I'll, I'll talk about a lot, but that goes for sure goes for like a Georgia or a Tennessee, North Carolina states that are you know, they're, they're going to get cold, but they're not necessarily going to be at a level where deer are forced to move. And that's, I feel like that's a situation that I've been messing around with the last several years. It's like every time I look back and I think I messaged or, you know, included this in that message. It's like pretty much every hunt that I've had in the last probably three seasons that's late like that, it's average so average that you know when we're talking about these big mature bucks standing there not doing anything i mean it makes it so that in my head and i don't even know that i have a solution for this yet necessarily in my head it's like well if i'm just gonna sit here the odds of me seeing one are so low like you know i almost feel like and and have had success shooting bucks doing something completely different 
to where it's like you're almost forcing an opportunity if that makes sense so this is just this is just a totally different strategy than what we've been talking about i look back at the one that i shot with ben in ohio during the regular gun season very average temperature day um you know probably 40s 50 yeah probably low 40s is a high and it started off sunny and then kind of turned to an overcast day the only reason that we got on that buck in the first place is because we bumped him now most of the time i think of or you know previously especially i'd be like man like i hate but and i do i everybody does hate that initial like oh there he's running away your heart sinks and you're like man how are we going to recover from this but looking back on that that's the one thing that allowed us to really be in the game, to put ourselves in the mentality of, okay, he's in here. Now we got to hunt him down where other times it's easy to, you know, when you got those bland conditions to just feel like, well, I don't even know that your confidence starts to drop so much that you're like, well, I don't even know that I'm in the game. Like, am I even, is there even one in here? And if he is, is he going to do anything other than stand and mill around in this little circle? So bumping him was one way and then another way that I've been seeing more deer and then also how I shot the one with the muzzleloader last year as a driver in a, in a drive is just moving fast, like moving. And it's, you know, it's not, and it's super situational because if I knew a really good pattern or found a bunch of feeding sign, I would really be into setting up on something like that. But a lot of times as, as we've been talking about recently, that can be spread out. That can be, you know, real hit or miss. And, and in a place where, you know, you're not finding a consistent pattern on a food source, it can really make you, make you doubt yourself, I guess. And that's, that's a struggle with a late season hunt that I'm continuing to try to learn more about and just try to have more confident hunts, you know, like how do you have more confidence going out there? And this year hunting Indiana, the thing that I took away the most and and something that it, it, this is kind of the main reason I wanted to go there. So I have, I had no ties. I'd never been there. I never even, you know, I haven't even turkey hunted there. I've never seen any of it. So I have zero expectation. And my thought was, well, just go for whatever your gut says and just see what plays out and just cover ground, try different stuff. And then you don't feel like you're connected to something or you're ruining something you're connected to. And I guess why I would feel that way. Otherwise it's like, if I was doing that in places that I've hunted a lot, like Ohio or Iowa, for example, I have this expectation, like this is the best spot. You know, we've seen bucks here. So then I lock onto that and I treat it I treat it, you know, real delicately. But when I look back on the experiences that I've had that, you know, during a gun hunt or a late season hunt, a lot of times, like we've been talking about with the mature buck, it is a totally different strategy. It looks very different than, you know, your traditional hunt in general, I guess. It just looks different. A lot of times there's a unique strategy, and I can honestly say the ones the, the late season hunts, like whether it's the Iowa gun buck with Keith and Jake, whether it's the Ohio buck with Ben or the muzzleloader buck last year, all those, all those hunts 
had a very unique spin on them versus more of the traditional, like, I guess, late season hunts where you're finding a bedding area and a food source and you're trying to intercept that move. And I just think, I think that's something that is fun, but it's also incredibly frustrating. And to the point where, I mean, you drive yourself insane, dude. Like you just, you'll drive yourself insane. They just don't move very dang far. Mm -mm. Especially when it's 40 degrees all day. No, they're not getting very far at all. So you have to go to them in some way. Like you either have to be, you, and we've had success doing that, like still hunting and popping ridges and stuff like that to find them. Um, and that I totally agree with your point about going into a to new ground because you don't have all of those things screwing with your brain the whole time. Because I've, I've bent my brain into, you know, a pretzel over and over again on those same situations where you got a bunch of history with a spot and you know you've seen big ones bed here, which is good, valuable knowledge. But at the same time, if you're not getting on them, you've got to try something else. You've got to get yourself out of whatever funk that your brain has got you in, and you got to go try something different. And I was just thinking about that the other day when we were having that conversation. It's like, man, it seems like we find them when we're moving or when we, when we can see. When we're in areas where we can see a long way and we can, we can spot one of them out there, then we can, I mean, then we're in the game. And we're almost all, all like that. It's like, if you, can, if you know where they're at, then we've got a chance. You can, you can usually devise a strategy at some point to get in there tight enough to be able to do something with them. But where, where you get that helpless feeling like what you're talking about, and I get it all the time, is when you just don't know. It's like you yeah. don't know where they're at, and you're freaking trying to get them, but you don't know, and you can't figure it out. It, but once you once you find them, that's just that's the hardest freaking part about it. Oh, yeah. And they like we've been talking about with these deer, these mature bucks. We're talking about deer that are standing up and feeding literally like 15 feet from their bed and laying back down in thick cover or in some sort of security. If you're not, if you don't know the X of where that spot is, then sitting up on some travel route where there's a bunch of deer sign, you're, you're probably going to see some deer, and you might, even, you might even shoot a nice younger buck. But m- m- nine times out of ten, the big guy ain't going to do that. He's got other things planned. He's got a different agenda. And you also had talked about, um, you know, all of a sudden there's all this pressure. And unlike, you know, we're talking later season gun hunting, I guess, like December and into... January in some states, like a lot of times in comparison to like a Missouri or a Wisconsin where you've got the gun season popping up in the, in the rut, the deer have went through the, the rutting site, you know, the, the, the majority of the rutting cycle, not to say you can't get waves of it. Cause we've absolutely seen that in December and even January at times, but it's like, if they aren't rutting, and they've already been banged around by, you know, a regular season gun or, you know, now you're into the muzzleloader or it's late into the gun season, depending on where you're at, that movement is going to definitely decrease in daylight. And in general, they're just like, well, I got nothing. I got nowhere to go. They don't have anywhere to go. And I've started to even believe that mid-December gun hunting in, in certain places, 
in certain situations, every place is a little different, is just as hard or harder than like this October law when you really get caught up in the like day in and day out and not seeing anything in the middle of October because it's just stagnant weather, you know. Obviously, when a, when a cold front comes through in October, it's great. But the same thing goes for December. If you don't have a big snap to get them up and moving, they're probably going to be pretty lethargic. You know, what would be, what, what is the point? And even if there is a little bit of rut in the air still on December 16th, he can probably just wait till dark to do it. You yeah, know what I mean? he's going to like, conserve energy because mm-hmm. he's in survival mode now. So the, the only advantage that you have, go, or I guess there's two advantages that I can think of right offhand, is there's the lack of cover. Like back in October, you can't see as much because of the leaf leaves on the trees and everything's still standing. There might not have been a freeze yet, but now there's no, there's not any cover. Mm. And like their, their available bedding locations are diminishing. Yes. So if you can understand that in whatever type of terrain that you're hunting in and start thinking about the most secure areas that still provide some sort of browse and, you know, woody browse or whatever it is type of food that's in that area, then those those can be really good. But where people get tripped up when they're hunting, um, you know, on just what I would call regular ground, like public land or private land on permission, is they don't have a two-acre standing food plot out there like what they see on TV, and they're like, well, we don't have any food. No, that's not true. You probably have way more food or the ability to have way more food than what you think. But people don't ever think of woody browse as late season food. They rarely think of, you know, hedge balls or hedge leaves or locust pods or any of these other things. I mean, just browsing on maple shoots, whatever it is. Um, they don't think of that as like a good high quality late season food source, but woody browses like there, that is such a giant part of their diet this time of the year that if you, if you start putting those things together, you can, you can, you can start, uh, what, what am I? It's almost process of elimination. You can, you can start eliminating areas, which is what, what we always talk about. And you might be able to focus on a better buck bedding location because there's, there just isn't as many of them. The other thing is a cold front in December or January is way different than a cold front in October. Right. Cold front in October, everybody's taking off work. They're going to the woods. They're, you know, back in a tree. Posts are popping up everywhere, <laughs> yeah. you know, with the bow hanging there. It's like, oh, good northwest wind. Can't wait to be out there, you know deer cast is, is, is all green or whatever. <laughs> like everybody's, everybody's out there. Yeah. But then late season comes around and whenever they get that hard temperature drop, all the guys are out there doing the same thing, but they're all sitting in boxes with heaters. Yep. Most guys aren't going out into the, into the gnarly frigid stuff. Like they're looking at the forecast like, oh, that, that, and that is exactly what happened last week. And that's exactly what me and Ted were thinking, honestly. Yeah. It was like, okay, Wednesday is supposed to be a pretty good day. Northwest wind, high of 20. It's going to be cold, but it's going to be before this major blizzard. Like, deer should still be moving because it's going to be cold enough, but there's also not going to be a blizzard, so we better hunt while we can because we may not be able to get out during the blizzard. Well, literally everybody else had the same plan because the woods were completely full of people on that day. I'm sure people were, you know, had time off because of Christmas and everything. But then as soon as that blizzard hit, nobody, 
not a human out there. And it's just because it's so miserable to be out in, in that frigid weather. That's a, and that's the big difference that I see that you can use to your advantage super late is like a lot of people are getting burnt out and then you throw major cold weather on top of that and you don't have a box to go sit in with a heater. It's like most people are like, nah, no thanks. I'm not going out in that stuff. The one thing I, w- I want to touch on real quick, because I feel like you look at the majority of what you can find online, it's it's uh, this time of the year, you're seeing people hunting deer in places where the deer are congregating to that. You're sitting standing in a comfortable... Standing corn, standing beans. Yep, yep. Or, or even, I mean, or even bait piles, stuff like that, hunting over feeders, stuff like that, to where you're drawing the deer to you. And that's not relatable to what I'm trying to do or trying to learn about. And, you know, when that's the only thing out there, you have to like, you have to not have, for one, not have that expectation that it's going to be like that. Obviously, it's just not going to be. If you're hunting a big solid timber on public land, you're not going to get them coming to a, you're not going to get them coming to a food plot because it doesn't exist. And you know, to your point about the woody brows and stuff, it just takes a little bit of extra scouting to find those food sources. And the beauty of that is you can do that even after the season, because the woods, you know, in December and January looks very similar to what it looks like in February and March. So even if the season ends and you run out of time, you can still go scout for these overlooked food sources. And you may find that, you know, deer have a tendency to congregate to a south facing clear cut or maybe you know certain years they have a concentrate they concentrate on a certain acorn and that's something that I've learned specifically is the clear cut and the acorn thing like certain acorn types I know if they're dropping now they're not always dropping so year to year it's different um, if they are dropping those are great food sources the locust pods is something that that's nope. something we learned in shed season. I've never been any good at finding freaking antlers anyway. So I was <laughs> looking around in the snow, and I'm and this is in February, like to your point, mm-hmm. and you're seeing where deer have recently dug through this snow, and what the hell are they eating? They're yep. eating locust pods. Well, a few years ago, we hung a camera over one of them on like the end of January, and it, we left it until turkey season and grabbed it during turkey season. And it was like clockwork. In January, February, March, anytime there was snow, there was deer on that camera digging through the snow to get locust pods. Mm-hmm. And that was just for the, like, they were there most of the fall, the, the pods were, and they would pick on them every once in a while while they're eating stuff. But as food sources become more and more limited, their options decrease. So it's like, this is available and this mm-hmm. is something that we can easily get to, like just dig through the top of the snow. And that's the same thing applies with the acorns. It's like some of those specific types of red oaks um, in the Midwest will, I don't know, what do they have higher acid content or something that basically preserves them? Yeah, it preserves them. So those may sit on the ground for some time after they've fallen and deer may come back to them later on in the fall. Or when you start going down in the southeast and you move south they have a plethora of oaks that drop acorns at different times of the year which is really cool so it's like in november there may be two or three oak trees that are really hot and then in december it may be two or three completely different types of oaks that are dropping but the deer are just gravitating towards those spots 
And people don't talk about that very often. They don't even think about that. Like a big woodlot like what you're talking about with no standing food plots in it, people aren't going to hunt that late because they don't know what to do. They don't, they don't know what to look for as far as woody browse because there's been very little education about anything like that. Even on like Iowa Public where we do have some standing food plots, and I look at them, and I've even hunted over them occasionally because it, you just hunt wherever the deer are. But if there's people out there hunting, they're going to those food plots because that's what they know. Like that's, they're gonna go to wherever the standing food crop is and there's probably gonna be a lot of deer using it. But is the big mature buck gonna just waltz out there in daylight? He might, I mean, I've seen it happen before for sure. But that's one thing that, you know, we're always trying to get away from is, is hunting pressure. Well, and if he's, you know, if he's got a really good staging food source that he can browse on throughout the day and it's going to keep him, you know, healthy enough to where he's got the, you know, enough fat on him to make it through the winter to reboot himself after rutting all fall, he's going to choose that because he knows it's safe. And he's going to let all those other, all those other deer kind of prove to him that the coast is clear and he can just stroll up there at last light or just after dark. And, you know, I think the majority of the time that is what's happening. So you may, you know, I think, like you said, you look at them, but the tendency that we have in those areas is to use them to backtrack deer to a different food source yet. So I think having those things as a kind of a destination in mind, maybe you check tracks and sign leading in and out of it, but that's just helping you find that next food source in. And it obviously helps if you know the area and know what, you know, acorns are dropping and, and, you know, if there's locust trees back there or another one that Jake talks about is finding a lot in wet, wet areas like in Wisconsin is that. Dogwood. Yeah. And horsetail, you know, the green stuff or snake grass or whatever. And I think, you know, it's, it's something that we are still really learning about. I feel in another five, 10 years, we're going to have another list of species that we're not even talking about, or we're probably not even aware about right now in these little specifics that will help us narrow things down. But I just, I always feel for the people that are in a similar situation to you and I, where they're hunting a more pressured area. You don't have the ability to hunt over a standing bean field. And it's like, I mean, I hate to be, (laughs) I kind of hate to say this, but it's like, yeah, no kidding. The deer went to the standing bean field or the corn plot that was mowed down and is all just like, you know, spread out. It's like, that's, that's, I mean, I don't know. It's obvious at this point. Like it's everywhere. People can get on YouTube and they can watch that over and over and over again. And it works. Like I'm all for it. It's probably the best way. Yeah. If you got private ground and you want to draw some deer in late season, plant some food plots and put some standing crops out there that they can get to when it snows. Like if it gets cold and you got a blind set up and you can stay warm, it's really fun and it's not (laughs) miserable. So go for it. I don't care. I'm all for it. Um, but if you don't have those things, like what you're talking about, then you're going to have to figure out how the deer use their natural habitat and what's sitting there. And when we, the light bulbs all started really going off, I feel like I can speak for you here. 
when we started talking to guys like Ben and Adam and Keith from Land and Legacy and Larry and our Keith Robinson, these guys are young guys that spend their time focusing on deer habitat and how deer relate to that and how they use it throughout different times of the year. And just having Matt and Adam come to the farm at Dad's for a couple of days was like, holy crap. This thing has got all kinds of cool stuff on it that deer like. And there's so much you can do either on your private property to manipulate it to make make it better suitable for deer. I'm not talking about food plots. I'm talking about habitat management. And then there's also all these takeaways that you can bring on to public land where you can get out there and you can identify what these food sources actually look like and when the deer use them. It's like when they when those guys came up to the dad's farm and they they cut that section back in the timber, they they were like they they did some hinge cutting and some flush cutting to open the canopy up and get sunlight to the ground. And they said, "Look around these open woods and tell me if you see much for deer browse, like where they nibble cuz I I know what that looks like. Like whenever deer browsing on woody browse, you can see where they've nipped everything off. And it's like, well, there's not a lot in here. They're like, we're going to cut all these trees down and we're going to put all of that browse on the ground. There's a reason why you don't see it all in closed canopy. It's because they've eaten it all. There's nothing here. But when you drop those trees to the ground and you have all of those little shoots with buds on them and stuff like that, they were like, put a trail camera up over this cut within a week. And this is in the middle of January and February, in the middle of winter. They're like, within a week, you're going to have deer in here every single day eating on this fresh browse that we just dropped to the ground by cutting these trees down. And they were spot on. Had bucks in there in daylight within a week using it, using that stuff and eating the, the heck out of that woody browse. Yeah. And it's like, that makes total sense. So if you look for areas, immature timber, high stem count, areas like that where the majority of that woody browse is concentrated at ground level where deer can actually reach it that's way more late season food mm-hmm. than big closed canopy timber and bedding cover or leads to bedding cover yes that's yeah. that's right you get all these light bulbs that start going off when you start talking to these guys that actually know what they're doing when it comes to deer habitat cuz like we know what we're we know how what's the best way to put that we know what we're looking at when we find it we know that like deer are using this this is deer browse but i don't know what the hell it is (laughs) right yeah oh yeah i gotta go and find out from these guys and then i want to learn about those plants and where they grow and why they grow in these different Mm -hmm. situations i couldn't agree more i've always used ben to as a resource for that but you know he's he's getting better at it he's getting better at teaching he's learning more i mean it's and in different habitat types too. And it's, it's so funny because like, you know, you think about such a focus on food, right. And in hunting media. So like, again, we're talking about the obvious standing bean field or cornfield. That's an obvious late season draw, but it's like, if you really want to get all of them, you pair that with these habitat, you know, the habitat work that is not in the open areas like a food plot or whatever. It's like to really maximize getting deer or upping your carrying capacity. If you pair those two things or, or, you know, depending on how much land you have, because that varies so much too, 
take the thing that you don't have and then put it on. So maybe that doesn't mean in your situation it's, it's a food plot, but like maybe you're in an area where your neighbors have food plots, but you know, you've only got 15 acres and you know, you're like, well, this is open timber. If I make more bedding cover here, which is really my best option, maybe that allows you to have some better late season hunts. And I think that all those things, you know, really just help the cause. And I guess there's one, there was one last little thing that I was thinking about the other day. There's a lot of places that we hunt where baiting is legal on private land. And something that we've definitely had luck with during the late season is just anticipating where, you know, there may be people hunting on private land and kind of using these predictable routes in and out and the deer are kind of just hanging off to the side. I mean, that's definitely how we've, we've, uh, found deer in arkansas where we were just at you can bait on private everywhere and it mm. it's gun season on private throughout the whole state for like a month and a half or i don't know if that's right or not but it's really long gun season so like the whole time we're down there it's gun season on private land and every si- and we talk to the local guys that hunt there and like yeah most of the guys that are hunting on private land are sitting over a bait pile in a blind with a gun every night and they're like these deer get so used to that that they that they're like the only gunshots you will hear are in the last five minutes of legal light every single day because it's that same stagnant weather scenario like what you're talking about they don't have a massive cold front blizzard coming down and just forcing deer out of their beds an hour before dark not in arkansas (laughs) and that's exactly what happened every night you would hear gunshots going off just a few minutes before the end of legal and that's those deer you know finally getting brave enough to step out and go to those bait piles but what ended up happening was we didn't see any hunters on that public land that we were on because nobody's thinking about going in and hunting deer, you know, feeding on natural browse or anything like yep. that. Yep. Or yep. nut all acorns that are that just fell like two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And it's not hard to figure out if you just go out there and walk around. But where you're in a state where there is that culture, that's how the majority of people are going to hunt. And right. if you're not hunting like the majority of people you're probably going to see more bucks because there's a reason that the big old bucks are the big old bucks and it's because they're not dying. And there's certainly in most areas, especially in these states with high hunter populations, in most areas they're getting hunted, whether it's on private land or public land. And you just have to think outside the box. You've got to think differently. And, and I'm like, as we're talking about this, we're talking about hunting these standing bean food plots and standing corn or whatever. But is, have we killed any mature buck off of one of those with a gun? Or for that matter, on public land, have we killed any mature buck off of those with a bow? I mean, I don't think we ever have unless uh, the closest that we ever have been, I guess, where somebody could have had he been in a different, you know, just a different spot was when Greg saw that one eight pointer come out into that Milo field in 2017 or 18. You know which one I'm talking about? I do. Yep. That was a cold weather, late season hunt. But even then, like Milo isn't, Milo isn't really thought of by a lot of guys around, uh, you know, home as being super good late season. Like bird hunters go in there a lot. And I would say the deer don't even seek out Milo as frequently as they do standing beans or standing corn or even brassicas for that matter. Yeah, that's the only one I can think of. He was bow hunting too. And that thing stepped out of the bedding area, chewed on some Milo and then turned around and went back in. But I'm, I'm sitting here thinking to myself, 
Uh, Ted and Zip killed that one um, over standing beans during early muzz season. Or was that grass? Yeah, I was going to say, if it was be- I mean, I think there probably was something planted in it, but it was pretty much gone. It was more or less grass. But I can't think of, I mean, I'm thinking all these late season hunts and the bucks we've killed in December, and I don't know that we've killed any of them over, I've hunted over standing beans and standing corn plenty of times on public during late season and really yeah. cold temps and seen piles and piles of deer. I've even seen some big bucks on them occasionally. But I don't think we've killed any bucks, any mature bucks. The majority mm-hmm. of the mature bucks that we've killed have been back in the thick crap. Um, and we're either sitting on them like me and Ted killed that one the other day or like that example you had with Logan earlier where that you just saw that buck out in that bottom where he was living, where he was bedded at, or we're killing them on escape route pushes. Yep. Yeah, pretty much in the only other strategy too would be a bump and dump. That I can think of and then that mature buck you killed last year in Ohio Muzz he wasn't even getting pushed he was just browsing wasn't he you you just came around a ridge or a ridge and he was down in there with some other bucks basically in their bedding area yep so that one was in a spot that we had seen like in 2020 archery season Keith and I had found a group of beds on the nose of the ridge that I was going up so I had that previous knowledge and as I was going up, I was the driver. So my goal was, and, and how, you know, I describe it in that video and, and in general, it's like our goal is to always put those guys to go in and their goal is to sneak up on one and shoot him. It doesn't always obviously work that way. 90% of the time it doesn't. A lot of times there's variables like it's thick or the conditions don't allow you to, but that particular day it had poured rain and we had quiet conditions and I had that previous knowledge of a bedding area above me and I started to sneak into it and I, I was trying to decide if I wanted to go up. So basically I'm going up this nose of a ridge and above that is the, the high point, the peak. And I was trying to decide, okay, do I want to go to the left or do I want to go to the right? And the beauty of, you know, being that in that position is you can just go with instinct and if you fail, you know, you're hopefully just bumping it to your buddy. So I was able to be max aggressive. And I just remember thinking in a, in just in an ins- instant, complete, uh, completely going off instinct. It was like, well, the wind's going from left to right. I guess I'll just circle the downwind side of this point. And as I wrapped around there, he was just standing there. He was rubbing and I'll, I'll just never forget that. The first thing I saw was white go like that. What well, was his head popping up? off the tree and I thought it was a tail. So I immediately pull up and realize he's rubbing and I snuck up a couple yards and got a shot. But that is what I would consider, you know, the other, the, the, the final strategy that we've put into place to kill bucks is like being mobile, similar to what you did in Georgia. You know, you're moving through trying to find deer. And I think that, you know, that's, personally my favorite but even even within that it's like you know you have to change your pace a ton based off conditions and in some days you can still do it in my opinion you can still do it on really tough conditions like crunchy calm conditions but those are the days you better have a damn good understanding of where they're going to be already because you're going to have to play it way slower if you don't know where they're at then you're you're sunk 
well, and you're blowing them way before because you're going too fast. You know, you're blowing them way before you see them. And I think those are the types of days I like to have, you know, an idea, like basically from that season already, already seeing fresh sign in an area to revisit and hunt more specifically. You're still, you can still be mobile, but you're maybe narrowing it down to like one little ridge system or a couple different fingers that you can play it, you know, play it out several hours to get through it versus when you've got windy conditions or wet conditions or a combination of those, you know, those days are the days that in my opinion are, are where you're finding out more. You're learning way more, way faster. That, that's why even if you've got um, a lot of people will hunt those days on a cold front, but they don't hunt those days when it's warm. And it's like, you got to be out there if you got those conditions, because they're giving you a chance to find them today. They're giving you a chance. It's wet. They can't hear you walking. As long as you're quiet, they can't hear anything close to them because it's blowing wind. And like we were talking about this blizzard hunt, it's snowing sideways. So they can't see anything. The same thing happens when it's raining really hard. They can't see anything. And you just have, you can just be moved through the woods so much quicker without boogering deer out. And if you can find them, man, then you're, then you're in the game, possibly not even just for that day. You might be in the game for the next two or three days if you find them right there. Or you might be in the game for the next time you have repeat conditions because they'll use that same type of an area on similar conditions oftentimes. So moving is huge. I mean, seems like we're always, especially in gun season. Honestly, depending too on how confident you are shooting, I mean, the difference too is you can, you can bump a deer with a gun and you could still not even be out of the game in that moment. Cause the one thing I've noticed, um, cause the whole Indiana trip, was super aggressive. I'd say probably the most aggressive that I've ever hunted. And I wanted to do that. That's what I wanted to get out of it. And then like the video that I'm working on right now, that's what the whole like strategy is. It's just move. And like, you know, if we bump one, that's in the past, not even meant we're out of the game. In the past, it's meant honestly, a lot of times a pretty good thing. So like, that was what I was trying to keep in mind. And I think that when you have that when you have the extended range and if you like continue to get better at entering like bedding areas or areas that deer frequent they're really man i don't know deer just aren't that good at seeing and even a big buck he can't they can't see very good yeah and he a lot of times what i've noticed that the deer do is they see something and then as long as you don't just keep pushing it a lot of times they'll run a little bit and they'll stop and it's like so many times you can actually get a, like, you know, you can still get a shot off with a gun if you're willing to, um, you know, if you're willing to make a little bit of a move or something to get into a good position. But, but all things aside, it's like, I think, uh, using, like using the condition in that situation, use the condition to your advantage to find them. And then the other thing, I guess that I was going to kind of wrap a bow on that like moving aspect of it is if there's ever a time where in my opinion deer aren't gonna leave or it's gonna be 
damn hard to push him out of there is late season. Because if you think about October, you had mentioned earlier, and this is an awesome point, when it's October, they have like max betting potential. They have all kinds of options. So if you bump them, they may even move a few hundred yards or a quarter mile, and that's going to be hard maybe to find them again. But late season, if the betting areas are shrinking and the amount of them is shrinking and there's this really good food source that they're keying in on that time of the year, there may not be a whole bunch of spots like that. So you may be able to accidentally bump a little bit more than what you wanted and then still revisit. And they're going to, I mean, nine times out of ten, they're going to be there. Late season, it seems like it takes a, a bit to push them out of there. And yeah, if they, if they smell you, it might be different. But most of the time, we're not moving into areas with our wind blowing into them unless we're wind bumping it on purpose. We're going in there with the wind in our face. You know, especially if we're still hunting, um, to whereas if you do bump them, oftentimes they will run off and turn around and look back because they just heard you or saw you. They didn't smell you. And that that's their, man, that is their confirmation. It's like um, when a doe, you know, when you're in a tree and a doe walks downwind of you, or uh, any deer for that matter, but especially mature does, you'll see them hit your wind and they'll whip their nose up in there. It's like, okay, she's smelling us now. And then she starts stomping, her demeanor changes, she starts getting nervous. If she's real pressured or it's real pressured deer, they'll just bolt and get the hell out of there. But often you'll see them sitting there processing that information as they're smelling. And then they end up looking up in the tree at you. And I've noticed this a bunch. It don't matter how good your head up there or how, or I guess vice versa, how well or how bad your head up there. They're finding you because of the scent yeah. a lot of the time. Now, I'm not saying they can't bust you in the tree. They sure can with their eyes. But a lot of times they'll hit that scent and they'll smell it and they'll smell it and they'll smell it and a few seconds go by and then they pinpoint it in that tree. And that's when they find you up there and they go to stomping and blowing and taking off out of there. It's like they, their nose is so good that they can pinpoint the exact freaking location where that smell's coming from. And that's the thing that's eye-opening to me is our brains don't work that way. We rely more on our eyeballs. Like yeah. they literally, that's how a buck finds a doe, you know, in the rut. Like you, they catch their pheromones from however far away. And then as they get closer, that's why they always circle downwind when they hear you, you know, banging rattling antlers together. Is because they want to be able to smell the exact point of where you're at. And then they zero in on it. It's kind of like a turkey hearing you calling from 500 yards away. It's like they're... They had the, that ability to pinpoint the exact location of that sound. Those deer had the ability to pinpoint the exact location of that scent. So they go, they go in there to that same spot. But my point in all this is if you have the wind in your face and you bump into them, like what me and Ted did the other day, and that's what I was going to say. We bumped into that buck the other day and blew him. He was like six feet from us when he took off, but the wind was in our face. Like there's no way he smelled us. And I've been wanting, and I killed that one with a muzzleloader, but I'm wanting to get back in there with my bow and try hunting that deer because I'm sure he's in that same bedding area. Like, unless he got pushed out by drivers, which is possible. But I bet even if that's the case, that they probably just walked right past him. Yeah, and even then, I mean, I mean, I guess it, it's like what I was saying earlier. If there's limited cover and there's limited food sources that he wants to use and he's escaping successfully without getting hit you know getting shot it's like well he's winning 
Like he's probably going to keep keep going back. Even I mean, even if he is getting blasted, and you know, sometimes I feel it's one of those deals where maybe he leaves it for a week, but it's like, you know, to your point about going back with a bow, it's like if if the initial rush of you know, muzzleloader hunters kind of starts to fall off. He may be like, eh, you know, five or six days have gone by and I haven't smelled anybody in here. I better sneak back in that bedding area. He's already felt safe enough to be in there through the first two gun seasons. So right. it's like everywhere <laughs> else has there. been compromised either by lack of cover or in, intense gun pressure. So he was in that. That's why all those deer were in there is for whatever reason, it hasn't been getting hammered or it's so thick that when people walk through it, they just don't spook them all. And like, they just, they felt super comfortable out there. We had does that got ran out from a drive and they came right past us. And 30 minutes later, they came back past us again. It's like they, they went to one side of the bedding area that we were sitting in and then they came back through it. But the other key point to this time of year is the visibility that you have. You can see so much better now than you could in October. I mean, hundreds of yards further in lots of situations. And that's what I'm kicking myself about that first day when we bumped that thing, is we had the high ground on him. We could see down in there. And if we just, that's why I've, I've got to train my brain to do that more because I get I know that that's the case, that mature bucks act differently than the rest of the deer, but it's so hard to train your brain to think that way all the time and not ignore the rest of the deer necessarily, but don't focus on them. Don't focus on the five does over here and the spike over here in the corner of your binos and the two-year-olds up here. Start looking for the little nooks and crannies of that bedding area and gridding across it and looking for a leg to move or a patch of fur in there or something or a tine because that's what he's going to be doing. And I felt like me and Ted glass for 30 minutes. We saw those two decent bucks way out there and we're like, okay, we marked them. Okay. We'll get it out of here and go check out some other stuff. We were getting cold, hungry, impatient. But if I could go back and redo that, I was be planted on top of that Ridge all morning. And even through the middle of the day, if you could, because if you've got confidence that there's a mature buck in that bedding area, he's going to move around in there at some point. And it might not even be till noon. Who knows? But if you just catch him stand up and move 10 feet, boom. Now, you're, now you've got an X on him. Oh, yeah. And you're not going in there with the unknown. Now we, we bumped him and know that he's in there. So that's good. And then he didn't smell us. But I feel like we probably wouldn't have even bumped him we might have been in a position to kill him that night with the gun, especially if we would have just sat on that ridge. And if we would have been looking for that instead of watching the rest of the deer, like running around out there and zigging and zagging back and forth, that was where our focus was the whole time. It's like, they're so good at, at not acting like the rest of the deer. Oh yeah. Well, and I mean, something like on a different strategy note with a group, with a group, one thing that like I constantly have to feel that I constantly have to like kind of go into, I don't know what you'd call it, maybe defense mode or argue, counter argue is, well, we're seeing deer doing this when we're driving. I'm like, hey, man, I know we're seeing deer, but like, to be honest, none of us, we're like, like the one year we in Ohio, they, the laws change every year for, for doe harvest. But like the one year we couldn't legally even shoot a doe at the point in the season that we were doing the muzzleloader drives. It's like, 
I don't really care about seeing a deer anymore. I mean, I hate to say that because it's like, yeah, it's still fun. But it's like, if we're trying to shoot a buck, we got to do something different. Like just seeing deer doesn't really mean anything. And if to take that a step further, to shoot a big buck, it's like, you're probably going to have to do something way different. And I think that's something that we've, con- like, from that strategy side of things too, we've definitely gotten better at, you know, finding out what the bucks are doing in comparison. But it's the same, it's the same thought process. Like it's easy to get caught up in deer. I want to see deer, but you know, a lot of times when you look at the bucks that we've shot, whether that's with a gun, bow, early season, late season, usually we don't see much else other than those bucks, you know, really. Like, you could go down a whole list of deer, and there's a lot of examples of that. That happens a lot. Like, this buck that we shot the other night is the only deer we saw that night. Didn't see any other deer that night. That one that we killed in the timber a few years ago that we bumped and dumped, he was the only one that we saw for two days of hunting. Yep. But, I mean, that's not a one-size-fits-all answer, but it certainly happens frequently like that. They're just... they. I want to take some video because people talk about this thing, and we've talked about it a bunch, but I want to take some video and put it on the deer school at some point that just shows the demeanor of a mature buck. Now, they're all a little bit different, but there there are some commonalities with them once they hit a certain age. Once they get to four or five years old on heavily pressured ground, they just, they, the de- I want to just show the raw clip of the demeanor of some of these bucks. And that might mean that you have to sit there and watch a screen and a deer standing still for 10 minutes straight. But you really need to like I feel like that's necessary for me to see and for a lot of people to see if you really want to understand how a mature buck goes about it because they will sit there and they will just flick their ears and smell and lick their nose and maybe pick up a little browse here and there but they they will stand there in the same spot for minutes and minutes and minutes on end while other deer literally walk all the way around them like does might stand up 30 yards from them in the bedding area and be 400 yards away. And that thing has been standing up the whole time, but he has not taken a single step in the amount of time that it took those does to go that far. And that's an easy thing to say, but you really got to see it. Oh yeah, You got to see it in real time because it's almost like the thing isn't real. It's like he's a statue. That's why I thought we were getting busted the other day, because that buck was pointed our direction. I was like, oh crap, he's staring us down like he's looking through my soul right now. Like, no, he's just looking. He's just staring out across this open bottom, because that's what he does. My dad for years has always said, similar to the way I get excited about things, he's like, you ever just look down through the woods, and all of a sudden, you're looking at a spot for like 10 minutes, and all of a sudden, you see one turn his head like this, you know, just yes. barely. And it's like, yeah, it's like, it's crazy how much different they are. And they act and like, they can literally be there. You know, if you're in a setup or something, they can literally be there and you not even see them until, you know, they start to actually make some more moves. And I think a lot of times, I mean, just think about, and this is another thing that dad says all the time is like, just think about all the times that you don't even see them and they were doing that and they watched you go, you know scratch your head or stand up and stretch and then it's just like boom he's gone just because he was right on the edge of him being able to see you and you were impatient i mean i know that happens to me it has to happen to me all the time as much as i move around i I know it happens to me a lot if you if you've got that visibility and you're looking over a spot where 
there's a, there's a decent chance that there is a good one in there. Like you got to give it some time for, so that you can basically cross everything off as you're as you're gridding it out with your binos or whatever your eyes, because he could be bedded right there. And if you just take that extra couple of minutes to look at those details, you might catch it. I mean, that's often how you see them is like you just see the tine move or you see that rack just turn like that. And that's all he's doing. That's the only movement that he's giving you is exactly what your dad is talking about. It's just a head turn every couple minutes or it's just an ear flick or something like that or his tail goes like this. And then he puts his head down, he takes one step and he starts feeding. Yep. I think you can learn a lot from watching them too, because I try to think if I'm making a stalk move or a still hunting move, and especially if like, you know, if you're, you've actually got the visual on one, you're making the stalk or, um, you have found the fresh sign as you're still hunting, that's convincing you that he's in here. You almost have to become him. You know, you almost have to move like him because otherwise if you're moving faster than he is, he's going to get you. You know what I mean by that? Like you have to, you almost have to mimic their moves. You have to get in there. You have to get in their slow pace because they don't have any time. They don't have any, they're not sitting here worried about time because they're just worried about surviving in some situations in a small percentage of the year, they're worried about those, but otherwise they're pretty much just worried about surviving. So if you aren't in that same mentality of like, going easy, taking your time, really picking everything apart, you're going to more than likely move too fast. And it's not, I say it like it's something easy to do, but it's something that I try to keep in mind until, until you can get at the visual and hold the visual. It's really hard to move slow enough to not bump them because once you've got the visual, then it becomes a little bit easier. If his head's turned, he's not paying any attention. Well, now you know you can move faster, but to kind of tap yeah, into... Yeah, it's like there's not one... You don't have one gear or one speed right. when you're out there and you're moving. It's like when you hit the top of a ridge where you gain some visibility, then you sit there and you use that to your advantage for a while, several mm -hmm. minutes. Mm -hmm. Then you clear everything, and then you're like, okay, well, once you drop back down the ridge, you're losing visibility, so you can start picking up the pace right. to increase your efficiency. Well, yeah, just burn your way down through there. Well, and you've already alerted everything once you start to break in there. Yeah, yeah. It's like, okay, well, I'm on to that next knob over there that's 400 yards away or whatever. So then you can pretty much go to get over there until those last few yards where you're going to be exposed. There's all kinds of advantages that you can have late. Um, there's all kinds of disadvantages too, but they're just, I've been thinking about going back in there and hunting that buck with my bow. You should. Because he was freaking big. Yeah. And there was guys walking around everywhere in there. Like, they had no idea he was there for sure. Because we only heard one other shot that evening. It was the opposite direction of where he went. I think about that a lot. Like in gun season, I jumped two big ones off a huge piece of public a couple years ago. I was slipping in there and I felt really good about the spot I was getting because there was guys starting to drive from all the parking lots. There were big groups coming in and I got right to where I was wanting to set up and I broke a stick and then boom, they took off and they were like 40 yards from me in these cedars. Two huge bucks. And they were right on the edge of public and they ran up that ridge and on the private into the thickest, nastiest cedar thicket that I know about on that whole piece. And then I climbed up anyway, and I saw like 30 deer, probably 25 hunters, 
throughout the course of the day. They're shooting everywhere and I'm thinking to myself, the two biggest bucks using this whole property, I bumped out of here before those guys even <laughs> stepped foot out of their truck. And like they're pushing this whole entire bottom out and there's deer running all over down through there. And the two biggest bucks on this whole place are completely safe the entire time. And the only reason I know that they're here is because I was sneaking in here. And if I'd have been driving like those guys, like walking full speed down through those bedding areas, I would have never even saw them. Like those guys would have got 300 yards from those deer where they were bedded and they would have took off and they would have had no idea they even existed in the world. So it's like these are these freaking mature bucks are the they're the marine snipers of the <laughs> woods. They are. Well, and if you think about it from an experience level, like think about the first time you went bow hunting compared to if you were to go bow hunting tomorrow, how much more experience you have in a variety of situations. A mature buck is at the top of the list of that in, within the deer herd. He has the experience. He's the wise old punk that knows, you know, if I do this, this, and this, it's probably going to mean danger. If I do this, this, and this, on the other hand, it probably means I'm going to get out unscathed. So thinking of it that way yeah it's and like, he's got no ties to anybody right like does are in doe groups and other things like that and they're real social and everything once the rut ends mature bucks do not care about anybody else mm -hmm. so it's like you know if somebody commits a crime and you're trying to catch them well then you go and you ask you know immediate family and friends <laughs> what that what all do you know about this person or whatever right. when it comes to a mature buck like he's got no ties to anybody right. other he doesn't care about any 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 of the other deer during late season. He's just worried about himself. And honestly, throughout most of the year, he's like that. He's just worried about keeping himself alive. So man, that is a tough target. It's a super difficult target to find. But anyway. We've covered a lot of different things, but I guess uh, with that, we might as well wrap it up and just kind of say, you know, at the end of the day, you can do, you can do this, this, and this, but it's still gonna be tough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're probably going to win 99% of the time. They did it with me this year. I bow hunted like 43, four times. <sighs> Finally got one. Finally. Hey, always learning though, regardless. I think that's the most important thing is like every year that goes by, I just, I know when the season ends, I think, man, I learned a lot this year. I hope the same thing happens next year. And honestly, yeah. no matter what the outcome of the season is, it is always the same. As long as you're thinking about what you can learn, you're uh, going to learn. I'm always just like, man, I'm so stupid. Like that, <laughs> I am just such an idiot that I don't know these things or that I do know these things and I knew better and I still did it and screwed it up. Like, it's like they just win so much that it's, it's refreshing to get to turkey season and shoot birds in the face. Yeah, I'll agree with that. <laughs> anyway. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks, Warb. And we'll catch everybody on the next one.